I'm your host, Aaron Groves, and welcome to the Pop Podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. If you are tuning in on Monday, I hope everyone had a great weekend. I am recording this right before I head off to Mexico. So expect a rather life update or some new information coming your way once I get back from this yoga retreat. But I'm super excited about today's guest. She was referred to me through someone that was just on the podcast. Shout out Sarah. And those are always my favorite because not only is there a common ground, but nine times out of 10, they're in a different industry or just have a completely different perspective on life. So I am super excited. I sat down with the owner of Trova Wine and Market, Michelle Bonds, this week. And she's very, she's an incredible person and she's very soft spoken, as you all know. And as I've learned for myself, I'm a fast talker, but she's an incredible human being. And she, founded this business right in the height of COVID, July 2020. And we talk about not only opening up a business in COVID that is an in-person market. So they sell wine. You can go there for happy hour, business meetings. They sell a select amount of food. It's not a full restaurant, which was the intention behind it, which we'll dive into in the episode. But We talk about so many different things and she has such a unique and calm energy to herself, which I absolutely loved and always challenges me as the high energy that I am and the interviewer that I am. So we dive into all things entrepreneurship. Obviously, she's the owner of Tova Wine. We talk about leaving a small town in Arkansas to move to a big city like Chicago challenges with opening in the pandemic and how she got around that. We talk a lot about her traveling and everywhere that she's been, Argentina in specific, and what that taught her about life. And probably my favorite thing from this episode, if you don't get anything else, she said something towards the end of the episode about feedback. And she said, if it's something that I hear 18 times, that's something that I will look into and potentially take action on changing. And it's your reminder that whether you're getting unsolicited feedback or someone said one mean thing to me, whatever is going on in your life, if it's not a consistent theme or you haven't heard it 18 times, let it go and get back with your vision and really focus on the things that you need to focus on and block out all the noise. So without further ado, let's hop right into the conversation. My mom had gone to Northwestern. Okay. And heaven forbid I do what mom does. Yeah. So I Are you a middle even, child? No, oldest. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And so I wouldn't even look at that school. I didn't really know anything about it. And she knew of University of Illinois and took me there. And it just felt like home when we visited. It was it had everything. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study, yeah. which will probably be a theme we'll get into today. Yeah. Um, but it had everything because it was a huge school, huge campus, and it just felt good. So I applied. I got in. And that's where I ended up. What was your favorite thing about the Midwest? What was the biggest difference that you noticed between the Midwest and 
I remember the first time I went home, um, someone held the door for me, and I was like, I've missed this. <laughs> As you go to, yeah. to Illinois, and those guys just let it shut in your face. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it really you find a little bit of conflict because you think, I'm an independent woman, but I'm an independent woman who's had the door held for her for 18 years. So <laughs> that was different. <laughs> Did you say y'all a lot? I did say y'all. Okay. Um, I will weave it in from time to time now, but it definitely uh, kind of scaled back a bit when I went to school there. It's kind of hard to, when I first moved here, obviously like four years ago, I refused to say it. I always said you guys. Yeah. And now with the political, everything going on, I don't talk about politics on this podcast, uh, but my last job was like, you, you can't really say you guys, like yeah. you need to say you all. So yeah. now I've incorporated it more, yeah. but I never understood it until I got here. And everyone's yeah. like, y'all, y'all, y'all. And I would say, you guys are like, stop saying that. <laughs> when you're from the Midwest, it's like, I've never heard y'all until I came down here. So this is what I say. Yeah, it's sufficient. You can give them that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what brought you, you mentioned a little bit that you didn't know exactly what you wanted to go into when you went to Illinois were you always super into all things food and wine or I didn't know it so um I went to Illinois studying education and the um advisor that I had very quickly said you're different than my other students and I think you need to go home for a break and get in the classroom and that's exactly what I did. And I came back and said, I need to change majors. <laughs> it was just not for me. And, you know, I'm also, I'm almost 40. I don't have children. I don't really plan on having them. Um, it, it's not my thing. Yeah. Uh, personal choice. And uh, so she was spot on. <laughs> Thank yeah. God for her. I, I shifted actually to communications and sort of found my way to wanting to dip into PR or just something related to that in business. In terms of food and wine, I didn't, I I always, my mom always cooked. I always liked cooking. I wanted to bake cakes all the time when I was younger. Um, But I grew up in the middle of nowhere. I mean, really where I'm from has nothing. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the comedian Fortune Feimster, but she has a bit that she does about going to church on Sundays and everyone watching the clock or noon to roll around because the only place you can go to really eat is Chili's or the Country Club. And I I actually grew up Presbyterian, and we moved our service, our church service, to end— uh, 30 minutes before the Baptist so we could beat the Baptist to Chili's or the country club. So, I mean, those are truly the only options. <laughs> and The deep south, um, people. <laughs> the deep south, it really coming through. So, no, I was not really into food and wine. Um, that sort of happened. I graduated from Illinois. I went to Chicago, Ooh. and it's a food and wine mecca. It's amazing. And I worked for a small finance firm and really – Everyone there was sort of moving to the suburbs, and I was still living downtown and going out with my friends seven nights a week. And so I would happen into different places, and I kind of started a little spreadsheet that showcased, you know, what I thought of everything, what I would rate it, and um, it kind of progressed from that to people asking me all the time where to go. Um, 
additionally, in terms of if there were ever gifts that we had to buy for anyone for like a marriage or yeah. their daughter's getting married or there's a baby or whatever, if wine was involved, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I knew nothing about it. And I happened upon a shop in the West Loop and someone that I worked with also knew the owner of it. And so she recommended it. And the guy just never missed on his recommendations. They were great. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, I need to know what this guy knows. I mean, this is incredible. There's so much out there that I could could know. But I do remember when I was about, I don't know, seven or eight, my parents asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, own a restaurant. And they said, oh, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> You only have two options, <laughs> chilies in the country club. That's all so, I yeah, yeah. so I guess I wanted to open chilies. I have no idea. Or maybe I, I knew there was something beyond those two options as a, a wise seven or eight-year-old. But um, yeah, they said, don't do that. And here I am. So <laughs> It's so wild when you think back. And even for me, and I've said this on the podcast, and I literally just told her this before we got on the mic that... I, my parents always told me to be a sports broadcaster and now I'm doing something similar in a different form. So it's funny, the things that you're told when you're younger or the things that you say you want to be when you grow up. Yeah. A lot of it is like, oh, I want to be a firefighter. Some of that comes to fruition, but some of it truly lands. And these people are living out these childhood dreams Yeah, that they had no idea then what it would mean to them now. Right. I mean, where I grew up, there's really... It's a small town, right? Yeah. And so everyone's parents are working for the same companies or doing the same six or seven things. So they work for the bank. They are a doctor, an architect, an accountant, a teacher. My dad's a farmer. He told me not to do that and not to marry <laughs> one. So I listened. <laughs> um, my mom was a teacher. So um she fell in one of those categories as well. But, I mean, there was really nothing outside of that. I'd never heard of investment banking, private equity, marketing. I mean, I didn't realize these places. When you're a kid and you're going to the bank, your experience of said bank is the ATM and the drive through window where they give you suckers and they give your mom cash. You know, you don't know that there are various elements of this, especially when you're somewhere smaller where it's not a huge business hub and these, you know, massive pieces of various industries are all coming together. And so it was a bit of a shock to get outside of there and learn that there's so much more out there to do and you have to look into it and pick. <laughs> What's the biggest shift in perspective that you had from coming from such a small town where everyone probably knew everyone to going to a big city like Chicago? I think a big shift with the city is, first of all, I don't think you ever understand or grasp how much opportunity mm -hmm. is out there. And, you know, you come from the small place and um, and you you shift to a bigger place and see like, oh my God, these people have more than one house. You know, this is crazy. And they do this job I've never heard of and it, it's completely different. And um, the I think the small town element of knowing everyone around actually kind of helped with the adjustment because it made you I'm used to walking into places and have we can barely sit down at the booth in the corner because you have to pass by, you know, eight people that you know, 
say hi, ask about them, catch up. I like that feeling. Yeah. I grew up with it. I'm comfortable with it. And so I wanted to make that big city similar. And so I've always been an extrovert. I've always been outgoing. And it really makes you have that push to make that big city as small as possible. That's a super unique point of view or the way that you look at it. Cause I, I mean, my town wasn't super small, but I agree with what you're saying and I haven't heard it put that way. So I like that you said that because I think a lot of people struggle when they're going, I think it's harder to go from a big city to smaller than right, it is for sure to yes. go smaller to bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I'm always curious to hear what, yeah. What's the biggest perspective shift that you saw yourself and on top of that, what's the biggest challenge that you faced within yourself personally moving to a big city that maybe you just didn't know about yourself before you went to Chicago? Well, there's this funny story about the first time I tried to catch a cab, which I did not succeed. It was <laughs> I didn't understand that you I mean, I'd gone to Chicago before, but I'd always stayed in hotels or I'd been with people who grew up there and they were sort of doing it for me. And so the first day I've moved into my apartment, my parents, I'm in kind of the northern part of the Chicago downtown area, so near Wrigley Field. Okay. And my parents were staying downtown on the Magnificent Mile. And I needed to meet them for breakfast, and I just needed to, to catch a, a taxi. <laughs> and 30 minutes later, I'm calling them crying because I can't. And, you know, I was just meekly standing on the sidewalk going, you know, barely raising my hand trying to catch one. But you've got to get in the street. I mean, yeah. you have to get out there. But we're taught not to do that, yeah. you know, where we're from. So it's very, it was difficult. So I think, I mean, it was a harsh reality check. Like, I am living somewhere very different yeah. where you stand in the street and wave a car down. No one opens the door for you. You kind of have to elbow your way through the sidewalker. It's going to take you an extra 10 minutes to get where you're going. It's just harsher and different. And you need you need an edge, which I did not have on day one, yeah. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> did you develop it over time? Yeah. Do you feel so. that experience in Chicago made you a little bit more tougher and have tougher skins? Because obviously you're an entrepreneur and that's why you're on this podcast. Do you feel that experience tough on the outside or do you feel you always kind of had the entrepreneurial spirit inside of you? I have no idea where it came from. I She's mean, honest. Really, <laughs> I, I won't lie. I have, I have no clue. Um, yes, it made me tougher. The, you can see in little ways, um, you know, my parents are so nice, and when they go to Chicago, they're walking down Michigan Avenue and handing every homeless person, you know, a dollar. <laughs> and I was like, I would be broke. I mean, yeah, by the number I pass every day, and you know, you just learn to zone in. And I don't know what that says about me <laughs> necessarily. I mean, sometimes I wish I didn't lose that yeah. piece that would hand a dollar to literally everyone, but. Um, but yeah, you have to pick your battles and learn to tune things out. And I think a lot of that translates to entrepreneurship. Yeah. And what you, you brought your vision or your childhood dream to own a restaurant, not necessarily own, but you took from working in finance to going over and working for the Yum! brands. Why did you make that transition from finance to working in the food industry? Um, really just kind of chance. Um, 
I so I met my husband in Chicago. Um, he also grew up in a smaller town, West Virginia. Oh, um, oh my gosh, I'm from so. Ohio. Wait, that's wait, we're in West Virginia, <laughs> Charleston. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah. So he he moved to Chicago after college. I moved after college. We met through a mutual friend he had gone to college with that I grew up with in Arkansas. So very random. And uh, we both, I mean, we got engaged and we were talking about the future and both agreed that we loved it there, but we were freezing (laughs) and additionally kind of wanted a different life. Mm -hmm. Um, It looked like we were going to be, we really didn't want to live in the suburbs of Chicago. It was like, Chicago or bust. And if you live there, you're in the hustle and bustle of the city. And how long do we want to do that? Yeah. And he was ready to get his MBA and starting to apply to schools. And so we both separately listed where we would be okay living and saw what matched up. And Texas was on the list and he had gotten into UT and that just was the best decision for him. So we went to Austin for a hot minute. And then after that, he was going to work for Bain Consulting. And they okay. have, you know, they when you're doing consultant work, they can't roll every new person out at the same time. So they have staggered start dates. And no one wants to start in January because they want to start making money. Yeah. So everyone's clamoring for this summer start date right after graduation and to incentivize people to take later start dates they have these programs where you can go learn a language or do charity work and they'll pay a small stipend and so we're like okay we both have to leave Austin and go to Dallas which means I have to quit a job and he is waiting to start one. When are we both going to be unemployed at the same time again? Yeah. And so we decided to go for that January start date and we picked up and moved to Argentina with the stipend money. Wow. For three months, 90 days, whatever is appropriate without a visa. And we hung out, took Spanish classes, all of which I've forgotten, um, wow. traveled around. Um, for three months, and it was amazing. Would not trade that experience for the world. If anyone's going into consulting, uh, take the January start date for sure. Um, And then when we got to Dallas, well, the firm I worked for in Chicago needed me back for a second because they had someone going on maternity leave, and they thought they were going to be audited and they were like, well, Michelle can, she's familiar and we can boss her around a little bit. And I was, they knew I was going to need the money when I got back from hanging out in Argentina for three months. So I went back for a minute. He started at Bain. And then when I got to Dallas, I was searching for jobs and, and then landed at Pizza Hut, um, which is owned by Yum. Um, and it was on the communications team. Um, but it was just kind of further, without me even knowing, pushing me into the food and Bev industry. Um, and so a good fit for what was to come, apparently. <laughs> Wild. And we're going to dive into that. But before we get there, what's the biggest lesson that you learned being in Argentina? Well, 
life experience, whatever? I really think, um, I really think it was a bit of what I was capable of because I thought Chicago was a push, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I was honestly, aside from that one tragic day trying to catch the taxi, (laughs) surrounded by a ton of friends from college. I mean, everyone goes from Illinois to Chicago. I mean, a few go to other cities, but it was really turning into a big version of college. You know, you just ran into people all the time. This, I knew no one, and I didn't even speak the language. And I truly thought, you know, okay, you know, what country doesn't speak a little bit of English? And it it was a wake-up call. I mean, it, it especially the service industry, so taxis um, and just restaurants in general. Um, and also, when we lived there, we weren't living in a hotel. We rented an apartment. And so we didn't have somebody or we didn't have a front desk to go to to help guide us or, you know, translate or whatever. Mm-hmm. We had to really figure it out. And so uh, that was, I, I think, the first or second day I was thinking, uh, when do we go home? (laughs) Okay, how many more days of this? Uh, 88, okay, and counting. But that quickly shifted, and I realized how amazing it was. And the last week, I didn't want to leave. It was really hard because I knew, I mean, we were, the only thing we had to do was get up and go to Spanish class four days a week and think about where we wanted to travel for the weekend. I mean, it's really hard until you retire to find yourself in that headspace again. Yeah. Which was nice. Traveling to other places and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, I think you hit the nail on the head, teaches you what you're capable of. What advice would you give for someone that wants to break down barriers within themselves to see and challenge what they're capable of? I think you it's one step at a time. You know, you wake you wake up and you think, "All right, I have 90 days in this place." And that seems overwhelming, but if you just break it down, you know, let's get through the morning or the afternoon or the day, and what am I going to get out of this day? It really shifts the perspective and you don't have to think about it as such a long-term situation. I mean, it's I think of it similarly. So I do Orange Theory Fitness. It's one of yeah. one of my favorite workouts. And sometimes I don't feel like being there and it feels overwhelming. And I've done half the class and I still haven't done the treadmill portion. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to finish the last 30 minutes of this? I really don't have the energy. And it's one block at a time. That's the answer. I mean, it's really just do what they say. Mm-hmm. Um you can do anything for 30 seconds, you can get through 90 seconds. And if you just take it step by step, you'll get there. And it's sort of the same when you get outside of your comfort zone, really in anything, Um, just one block at a time, one step, one task, one day, one half a day, just break it down. And it feels so much less overwhelming uh, versus, you know, a long period of time. Like that, that's very well said and can translate to anything in your life, no matter what you're building or whatever challenge you're going to, taking it day by day, even in the hard moments, and then also in the moments that are going super well for you. 
talking about step by step, we're going to take us back to the Yum Brands and working for Pizza Hut. So obviously now looking back, that was a step towards owning a restaurant. What did that experience and working for that organization teach you about what you liked about the food and beverage space? Um, I think mostly just the feeling it invokes for other people. Um, Who's not happy when they're having a pizza? You know, it's typically associated with a party, a gathering. Um, You didn't have to cook tonight. You know, something as simple as a movie night. Um, Just it it gives people happiness. It brings them joy. Um, And I think that was a big takeaway from the place that also translates to the establishment I have today. When did you know that it was time for you to pursue Trova Wine and Market? Um, I was starting to have meetings with the executives in my department and Usually I would show up to something like that totally prepared with all the answers for what I wanted out of my career. And I maybe had a next step in mind or a team I wanted to join or a project that sounded interesting. And I had none of that. And I was just lying. Um, I was truly just trying to get through the 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and make it sound like I wanted to be there forever. And I was going home and going, oh, my God, I just I couldn't even make it up. And I think that was the I had the idea of Trova and I had put pen to paper. And I think when I couldn't even fake it till I made it anymore, it was the sign that it was time to pull the plug and and give it a try if I was ever going to do it. I mean, there is never a right time to take a big risk and do something. I mean, I think you can be more prepared than not, but I mean, timing, it, it's, you. how do you pick it? I mean, I just opened in the middle of a pandemic, so clearly I nailed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was definitely not in the plan, but um, really you just kind of have to, lean on what's going on with you and if you feel prepared or somewhat thought out or that you've thought through something you just it's time to go you said my favorite phase you put pen to paper where did the idea you kind of mentioned that you had the idea and then you put pen to paper where did that initial idea or light bulb go off of like hey okay i have this creative vision and now it's time for me to execute and really put my thoughts onto paper So I've never considered myself a creative. I'm really anyone that is creative in my life laughs. I can't visualize anything. Um, Interior design, I'm terrible. Oh, same. I just, I can't. It's not a (laughs) skill I have. Um, And I'm okay with that. You know, I've accepted it. But I think what manifested is... Ooh, love that word. um, All of the time in Chicago, the time in Argentina, these big cities, they had these places that I really, truly enjoyed. And there were elements of them that I loved. And then I came to Dallas and I loved Dallas. It was easy to move here. 
I love the people. It was easy to find work. Um, it's easy to find housing. There was really nothing wrong with it except the places to go sometimes weren't as exciting as the cities I'd come from. And so make them, you know, that was sort of my solution to that. And um, so I didn't really have necessarily one idea as much as I had a few ideas and I was just playing around with the concepts, the numbers that are associated with them, where these places would go. And one just sort of floated to the top. How did it float to the top? It floated to the top because, um, one, I missed that wine store in Chicago (laughs) where (laughs) he told me exactly what to buy and it wasn't always a thousand dollars. You know, it just, it was an easy, nice experience. Two, I was commuting from downtown Dallas to Plano and on the tollway every day. And Northwest Highway in Preston had absolutely nowhere to stop for a quick meeting. I mean, it was like you stop and you have dinner at Hillstone or R&D if you can get a spot. True Food Kitchen had just opened, so that was helpful. But there was really nowhere where you you didn't really feel like, oh, I need to order a whole meal with this Mm -hmm. person and it's only 5 p.m. and I don't really eat at 5 p.m. I don't want that right now. Also, just shopping with my mother-in-law or my my own mother, there was nowhere to stop and just sit and have a drink in that shopping center around the holidays. And so it all sort of, those things manifested into, man, this shopping center could use a wine bar. And then I started playing with the numbers and the idea and how it would translate in the neighborhood, and it just made sense. And there it was at the top. <laughs> How did you find the specific location? For those of you that are in Dallas, it is off of Preston Center, which now is very built up. There's a lot of stuff around there. So you were at the right place at the right time. Yeah, literally. I mean, honestly, uh, I was having dinner at True Food Kitchen and I looked across the shopping center and I went, I wonder how many square feet that place is. Because I was looking for something, this, this is a nuance of, restaurants but a lot of restaurants are very large mm-hmm. um because that used to be the model so you think of salt grass steakhouse and outback steakhouse and uh chewies and all these places you know they're they're big spots and i wasn't really trying to create that i was looking for something smaller um and more niche and there wasn't really a lot of already made restaurant real estate for the taking for that. And what I mean by that is when you are creating the infrastructure for what is a food and beverage space or a restaurant, it it requires a lot, like grease mm-hmm. traps, different types of plumbing, uh, electrical requirements. Um, you have to worry about um, handicap accessibility and things that may not be entirely possible in every single space. And so this was just a blank box. It was about the square footage I was looking for. So it was sort of divine intervention. But um, 
I I don't think I don't think if if I expand, which I'm thinking about, if I expand to anything else, I don't think my real estate experience will be the same, if that makes sense. Um, there are a lot of brokers out there who, I mean, can look at a gas station and go, that would be an awesome restaurant. And I would never, I mean, as the non-creative, I would never see that. You can't see, see that. that, yeah. Yeah. And so it was, this was an easy space because- it's in a nice area. It's in a nice shopping center. It was nicely preserved from whatever it was before. I had to add the the infrastructure that made it a restaurant. But otherwise, um, it was sort of turnkey. Um, and that, I don't think, happens often. So you launched in 2020. This mm-hmm. is when you open up your store. How did you overcome and pivot what you had in mind to be successful? For all of you that have been to Trova Wine, you all know I've heard great things about it. I've surveyed some of my friends. I know Sarah had said great things. I have not yet been there, but you've been overly successful. And I have a few questions on like how you've become that successful, but how did you pivot your business idea during COVID when a lot of people went down, especially physical locations like yourself? So... I opened in July of 2020, so it was just the height of everything. In fact, I remember the week we were set to open the capacity, if you remember the reduced capacities Mm -hmm. at every store and restaurant, it went from 75% to 50%, so it actually went backwards that week, and there is what a blow you know yeah. i mean i went from i'm doing this thing my friends and family from all over are so excited for me how am i even going to handle them during the soft open to no one is coming and on top of that no one that i know in dallas is terribly comfortable eating out yeah. right now because so many of my friends have small children and they weren't comfortable going out to eat, especially when the restaurant capacity is going backwards because COVID is all over the place. And I don't blame them. Yeah. I mean, and the last thing I wanted to do was make a close friend or any friend, you know, at all uncomfortable for the, on my account, you know, they'll make it there eventually. So um, it really was a matter of, How do we even, we need to test this thing out because the point of a soft open is, you know, you fill the place up and you let your staff just fall on their face for a few hours. You know, I think our POS system wasn't even running American Express cards. We didn't even know that. Um, I saw glasses of wine being delivered to tables and it just had just a hair of glass visible at the top. So clearly there was some overpouring happening, you know, just everything that you can imagine. Double shots you know, instead of single shots. Oh my shots. God. I mean, a duble, <laughs> yeah. a duble glass of wine. Um, the the ticket times were so long, you know, I mean, just everyone was waiting on their food. It was a disaster, which it's supposed to be. That's, yeah. you know, part of it. But to even fill that up was really hard. And so I had a moment of, okay, we need to to think about this and when what's going to happen. And I remember opening day, you, you just, you know, but you have a little hope <laughs> that, yeah. that, you know, there's going to be a line around the block maybe because 
it's been in the press and everybody knows this is opening, but I mean, it was 11 a.m. on opening day and it was crickets. I mean, there's really no no one there. Um, and the nighttime was, was marginally better, but, it, you know, it really couldn't be. My place is 48 seats, 50% capacity of that is 24. So it's not 24 people in this place. It's not exactly what I pictured yeah. whenever I had the stream. And so, so that was difficult. And the one thing that really just naturally helped us is it's, it's always been a dual platform business. So, um, it's a wine bar on premise consumption. You can come have things by the glass, have cheese board, salad, sandwiches. But you could also, if you're in a pinch and you're going to wine night with your girlfriends, grab a bottle of retail wine to go. And so that was helping us. And then the cheese and charcuterie program really floated a lot because people were looking for something to do at home. And so they would have, um, you know, their covid squad or whatever you know the people that they were hanging their quarantine yeah. you know that they were hanging out with and need something creative and so they would come and get you know they'd bring their own little cheese boards and say fill this one up for us and this up for another couple and and tell us what it is and we'd say do you want some wine paired with it and we'd make them an at-home experience you know experience for them to do and so that that was helpful but the, my landlord was helpful also. I don't want to pretend like, you know, they just watched me flail around. Um, it, you know, I obviously they saw the struggle that all of their tenants were were going through. So that was helpful. Um, and then eventually the vaccine happened and I feel like the floodgates opened and it's been fine ever since. So... What do you feel that you've done differently that has led to the success that you've had there versus other people in your space? In the restaurant industry in general? Especially in wine and small snacks, because I think there's obviously, I, I mean, I worked in the bar industry. I don't know everything about yeah. it, but there's a lot of profit on alcohol. Um, and that's where a lot of people make their margins. So I think you hit the nail on the head of that way. And then also offering small bites but at the same time it kind of deters away some of like bigger families that are coming to eat and yeah. maybe bigger parties so how do you feel that you really made yourself unique and successful in what you're doing um I don't think I've figured it out entirely I mean everything can always use room for improvement in my eyes I'll never stop looking at stuff that way um I have to give a ton of credit to my staff. I mean, they're incredible. Um, that was, I always say, COVID had its trade-offs. The trade-off to the 50% capacity was my staff had time to learn everything. And by the time we were at 100%, they were running like a well-oiled machine. Second, I got some amazing people that I don't think I would have had otherwise just because Maybe they didn't have as much opportunity at their current restaurant or they had been laid off. You know, there were there were many reasons. Um, and so I landed really awesome people. And I think they created a vibe that I didn't even, you know, I hoped was possible. But you, you can't believe it until you see it. But mm -hmm. they made wine comfortable to talk about and 
um, food approachable. And the whole experience is because of them, which is awesome. And it's fun to see and it's fun to experience because I, I like everyone who works for me a lot. And um, it's it's awesome to see them succeed. So I think that's been great. Um, also, I'm a freak about the numbers, about inventory. Um, there's constantly this whole, you know, stat that, I don't know, 80% of restaurants fail in the first year or whatever it is. How do you know? <laughs> you know, okay, a restaurant closed. Do you know why? Maybe the person retired. Maybe their lease was up and they saw the pandemic coming and they didn't want to deal with it, so they closed. Maybe they just decided to move locations and so they're still open, but they're somewhere else. No one's tracking that. So, yeah, maybe a restaurant closed their doors, but you don't know why. Why? So there's no real number. Um, yes, a lot of people see Food Network and TV <laughs> and they think, oh, yeah, this looks awesome. I want my name on a restaurant. I want to do it. And, you know, I'm going to be just like John Tafford and open this and they don't know what they're doing. Yes, that happens as well. But um, but I don't think the majority of that statistic is real. And so for me, it was important to just keep track of everything and know Am I making money or not? Because I think a lot of places don't know for a minute. You know, yeah. they're ordering and they're servicing guests and people are coming. And so they're happy. But and then they're looking at their bank account and there's e either money in there or there's not. But I'm tracking what did we make? You know, this is what we spent on this specific wine by the glass. What did we make on it? What you know, happy hour. What did we make it happy hour versus regular hours? What about the food? This is what we're spending for the ingredients in this dish. What did we make on that for the month? And it really, you need it to know if you're succeeding, but you also need it to drive. Do you even leave that on the menu? If you're just ordering that stuff for that one dish and it's barely selling, nix it. You know, I mean, there, there's, I get it, chefs attached to it, whatever, but, you know, it's plain as day in front of you whether or not it's working. And so I've been on top of that since day one. Now, was it super easy con to control starting day one? No. Mm -hmm. um, it took, I mean, I remember my kitchen costs were all over the place for the first three months and it took a second to rein it in and identify because you also don't know how many people are coming. It's it's a lot tough. of variables. Yeah. yeah. And then how OK are you with running out of something? You know, you can't run out of everything. So you have to forecast a bit. And I had a chef in there for a minute that wasn't great at that and maybe needed some help and guidance. Um so, yeah, on day one, no, it was not a, a, a perfectly refined system, but it, it got there eventually. You touched a little bit on the people that you have, and that's one thing that I learned about you that I want to highlight a bit, 
a little bit is that you are known for your leadership in the food and bev space and being one of the best people to work for, which I think is incredible. Why do you feel that is? What have you done differently from a lot of other leaders around you to create a culture and an environment where people a feel safe and also look up to you and aspire maybe to be like you or just admire you as a person and as a leader? Um, I think really, I I don't think I understood. I don't think I'm really doing anything all that special. I, I mean, knew she was going to answer with this because <laughs> she seems so humble. <laughs> um, really, it's mostly I'm treating them like humans. Um, and it's amazing how many places don't. Um, I give a lot of credit to Yum for that. They're culture champions there. Um, they put a lot of emphasis and there was a lot of reading material related to how important it is to make staff feel welcome and like they're accomplishing something. And just the the info on the good on that just very heavily outweighs the bad. I mean, it really never benefits you to treat somebody like trash. And I think, unfortunately, that happens in mm-hmm. a lot of spaces in the industry. And it didn't really, I mean, it benefits me because if you just do the simple math of how much it costs to post the job over and over again versus be nice and retain your staff, um, yeah, it's worth it. But um, I I think People just, for some reason, see they don't, it doesn't compute um, that retention is valuable. And it took a minute for it to catch on in, I guess, Dallas that Trova is a safe space for people um, because I was going, I mean, I'm posting these jobs and I'm having just as hard of a time as everyone else hiring employees. When is it going to pay off that this is a happy place to work and people yeah. like it here? And um, it just it seemed to to not be taking off as a concept. And I didn't really understand if it was ever going to pay off. I mean, not that it was tempting me to not treat people well. I mean, I still think that's the right thing to do and it, it benefits you. But um Finally, um, just in the last, I don't know, three months or so, we've had a couple of people come on board and it was without an online job solicitation. It was a text message or an email that's like, hey, I heard I got your name from someone in the industry and they told me the first thing I should do is call you. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, it finally worked. (laughs) about time because it just felt like it was never going I was never going to benefit from it but yes I mean I've worked for bosses who they've said these people will never care about you they'll never care about the business you need to just look out for yourself for your business and who cares about them you'll just hire someone else and I I could not I, I just disagree um Yes, no one will care about your business as much as you do. That is undeniable and just a fact at the end of the day. But, I mean, 
it is possible to build a team and support them and and make them happy in a place where they uphold your standards and in addition find what you are bringing to them as a benefit to their lives as well and it's not helping anyone or the cycle at all mm-hmm. if you're just discarding people because you can just hire someone else um so I'll never be on board with that one. The simplest things that you can do. And it's funny. I asked that question and I obviously didn't know what you were going to answer, but I had a feeling it was going to be along those same lines. Bringing things back to the basics. I think sometimes we overcomplicate what's right in front of us and just being a decent human being and being a good person. And you touched on something that I want to circle back on that you kept putting out this good energy and you kept doing the right thing but you felt like it was never going to take off or when is this going to benefit me I've had this feeling we talk a lot about this on the on the podcast how do you or what advice would you give for someone for being patient during that process when they think that they're and they feel in their gut and they're so like I'm doing all of the right things I'm putting out good energy I'm doing everything that I should be doing or I feel like I should be doing but I'm not seeing the fruits of my labor just yet I think for me it was simple because the alternative was, oh, do I just start being a jerk to everyone? And am I going to wake up feeling great about that? No. (laughs) So really there was no choice. I mean, it was just be persistent, keep it up. Um, And then I guess let's evaluate the worst case scenario. My favorite thing to do, um, it's how I cope all the My husband doesn't like it because he says that I'm forecasting things that will never happen, but it's my way of coping because I just feel better if I have the solution. Mm -hmm. So the worst case scenario is I keep doing this and it never helps, you know, in terms of recruitment, but okay, fine. You know, I'll just keep recruiting the same way everyone else does and just keep hoping because the alternative to that is, I mean, the worst case scenario is I just have to do what everyone else does. Okay, fine. It doesn't mean I'm never, because I'm being nice to people, it doesn't mean I'm never going to get another employee. I mean, I would imagine it's not putting, there's got to be some kind of list that I don't know about where everyone says don't work here and I just don't want to be on that. But, um, But yeah, the worst case scenario even was not pointing me towards changing. Um, And also, I didn't want to wake up feeling bad, you know, every day. I like waking up feeling like I have employees who want to come to work. I mean, we all have days we don't want to, but Mm -hmm. I would like their days that they feel like that to be minimal. So I would rather feel like that. Over the last two a little over two years now that you've been open, what's been the biggest challenge or obstacle in your business that you've had to overcome outside of COVID and how did you overcome it? Um, for me, um, personally, I think it's really, it, when you've, strived your I'm a striver that's how I would classify myself and when you're constantly striving for things to be great or perfect or whatever you really can't get away from it um, no matter how much you need to 
And so with this business, it's difficult because I will constantly every day wake up and dwell on things where I'm like, this would be better if. And sometimes that this would be better if scenario is something you can't fix or it costs $30,000 to fix. And then you have to think about, okay, will I make that money back? Is Mm -hmm. it worth the investment? I mean, yes, I would sleep better at night knowing it, but there are all of these voices in your head telling you how you could strive for even more greatness in this con it's basically a project that you have you've completed and executed and it's out there and there's not really much you can claw back on and just quieting your own internal demons is difficult it's really hard and then you have to also break down those thoughts and you know come to the conclusion of but does anyone else even even notice i mean or is this just something that is in my own head and everybody thinks this is great um i always i have a saying um that i learned somewhere and i'm not sure where along the way but it's don't solve for the 1% and I tell my staff that a lot um, because it's really easy to try to. You know, you just have one oh, the unsolicited advice that comes from mm-hmm. customers, from family, from anyone. Um, it's constant. And, you know, I'm glad people are thinking of me so I don't and my well-being. So I don't want to discount it totally. I mean, but, you know, I'll have customers come in and just give the wildest advice. And, you know, the really the only thing I have to say is, you know, a very small percentage of people would probably pay for that. And we, we really just can't solve for the 1%. You can't be the same thing for everyone. It's not logical. Uh, it doesn't. You would just you wouldn't be a defined concept, honestly, if you were were doing that. And so a lot of these thoughts in my head, you know, that that stem from, oh, this would be better if a lot of it is solving for the 1%. And you you have to really defi- figure that out and overcome it. Um, and that's it's it's a real it's a challenge as an owner um, and probably an owner in any space. How do you do that for yourself? Hmm. Are there certain things that you could tell someone to do that's maybe obsessing over certain things that, again, whether you're a business owner or not, I think it's easy to obsess over things about your life. And a lot of times that the negatives are things that we can't control and you hit the nail on the head. How can you deconstruct this and recognize where it's coming from? How do you do that for yourself? Um, step one, where did it come from? Did I think of it or did someone say it to me? Um, and then step two, um, put pen to paper. I mean, really, it. It, is it is it worth is it worth the amount of money, time, energy, effort that would go into fixing it? I mean, just solve the problem for yourself, mm-hmm. um, or else you're just going to keep dwelling on it and thinking it would be better if just over and over until the end of time. <laughs> Being an entrepreneur is hard in and in itself. And you 
have a physical store and are doing thing doing something very unique. I mean, for me, I've, I've never interviewed someone doing what you have. I've done a lot of or interviewed a lot of CPG girls who have online businesses or are selling a lot of their products online. What's the biggest thing that this entire process has taught you about yourself? Um. Oh, the internal reflection is really a um <laughs> not one of my strengths. Um I think uh probably that I need to recognize more of my wins. Mm. Um because when you have a physical space and you're in it, which I like be in the space and be a part of it and active and seeing how everything is doing. If it's ever empty or at a time that you think it shouldn't be or what you're just dwelling on it and and obsessing and thinking where are the people and and this is something, you know, Sarah Kinman and I have talked about before with when you know she was opening Clean Juice and I had Trova that and it was still relatively new. It's you know, we've never really experienced anything where you your success depends on other people showing up. Mm-hmm. And how do you make them? And, you know, some it's the long game. It, it truly is. And so when that is something that is a daily thing and it's and it's tough, um, the really only way to pick yourself back up is to recognize your wins which is not something I'm great at but Mm -hmm. it does help overcome one of the biggest challenges which is you know a total mental block and something that you're you know minorly freaking out about and you completely cannot control the biggest the best thing that I ever like focus on what you can control and you just have to let everything else go yeah even though it's hard especially when you're a business owner and you're like where are these people are trying to force things it seems like this mantra and I've heard this so many times this week is like you just have to let it go and allow things to come to you because that's when the magic happens and what's meant to be and what's meant to walk into your store and the success that you're supposed to have will come to you yeah when it's meant to flow to you yes it's also misleading because where, how many people are supposed to come? You know, when, if you think about other businesses that you are, you know, you you are a patron, okay, I'm probably there at prime time. Well, prime time, my space looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, but I don't know what they look like at two or three in the afternoon because I'm not going there, there then. And so, and also... I have a completely different business model than some of these other places. And so you just really can't compare. Mm-hmm. But I think other things in society, we, we do compare. And so it's really hard to change your mind, your mindset. A few more questions. How do you tune out the noise? You're in a physical business, so people are probably constantly giving you feedback, writing reviews, kind of the comparison game, what advice would you give for people 
tuning it out in a productive way. And what I mean by tuning out, I think ignoring all feedback is not productive in this slightest. I think there's a lot of feedback for me personally that has changed even this podcast, relationships. I think feedback is very productive, but you and I can both agree and a lot of people listening to this, that there's a lot of unproductive feedback. That's what we usually hold on to the most. How have you in your personal life kind of gotten rid of that unproductive feedback or at least tried to block out the noise when you have a vision and a goal that you're trying to hit? I always say, if we hear it 18 times, let's maybe think about it. (laughs) And because if you're hearing the same thing over and over, um, okay, maybe there's something there. Maybe it's not exactly what is being asked for because it doesn't make sense for your business or your place or anything. But maybe there's some underlying change that you could make that would, in fact, better your business Mm -hmm. but I wait until I've heard it several times because I mean really no one no one really accounts for the fact that no one thinks about your business more than you do Mm -hmm. I mean I go to sleep thinking about it I'm up in the middle of the night thinking about it I wake up thinking about it I'm in my car thinking about it all the time I have thought of it. I you guarantee you. You do have a kid. You, you know, you I mean, have I have a kid. A kid. I have a, kid, a child but... and its name is Trevor. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you think about it constantly. So, of course, I've thought of these things. It's it, the per- whoever is bringing it up. It's probably I probably thought of it a week ago, you know, but and I decided it didn't make sense for whatever reason. And I can't tell you what that is at that at that exact second. But if something is on repeat. Um, maybe it's worth it to look into a version of it. It doesn't have to be exactly what everyone's asking for. It needs to be what makes sense. I like the 18 times. I actually thought about that. I had this conversation with my producer. When you get the same feedback repeated over and over again, especially when you're starting something, it's always important to... like for me, I see what's the common theme. So if the overall, if the feedback's positive, but I hear one common note about an episode or the way I interview or whatever that is, that's usually where I drill down. I'm like, okay, how can I do more of that within the same circle of the theme or like the same bucket without losing myself in that process? Because I think where people go wrong with feedback is they try to change everything and lose sight of their vision to go where this person thinks they should when in reality, and that's actually happened to me. I've had lots of feedback and I just kept going with the calling inside of me because I'm like, I know this is leading me to where I'm supposed to go, even though I have the left and the right kind of telling me two different things. Yeah. And I think that's totally natural. I mean, if you think about it, you many people have come up with jobs or roles where you complete something and you have to show it to your boss and your boss gives you feedback and you, yeah, you can push back a little bit, but there it's their word. You know, that's what goes and you make those edits, whether you agree with them or not. And then you put out a final product that you're hopefully happy with, but it wasn't entirely yours. And this is the first time that it is. And that's, that's new. Yeah. And you have to, you have to find a new way to sort through the noise as a result. I love that. Two final questions to be respectful of your time. I feel like we could talk all day. This conversation (laughs) has flowed so easily. 
I saw an article that you did around the idea of success. And I haven't had this question in a while, but I know that you're super passionate about giving back to your community and your definition of success has changed. So that's my question to you. How has your definition of success changed over the last three to five years, especially since opening up Trova? Huh. Well, really, if you, if I think back on, on life, I mean, I've talked to other friends who are entrepreneurs about this as well. And just successful friends in general, I've never, I mean, I've never really failed if you think about it, if, or if I think about it, um, I can think of like a couple of embarrassing moments in life that I guess you could say were failures, but they were taxi. They were the taxi failure. Big F on that one. (laughs) They were (laughs) big F on catching the first taxi, but they were so meaningless that it didn't Mm -hmm. shift my life in any way. And Trova is the first thing that I've ever done where I was thinking I really could mess this up. I mean, this could really impact the financials of my household. I mean, my career trajectory, how my friends and family view me. I mean, it really could could shake things up. And so I really went from when it was a dream and an idea to wanting to just kill it. I mean, just how do I blow this out of the water, have the best numbers in the city? I want to be on every top list i mean just i want to kill it to this thing is open and it is profitable and it made it through covid and people like to come here that is success it, it's a complete shift um from what i thought it was going to look like in the beginning um because really when your livelihood's kind of on the line you you change um the definition I think I love that it shifts from more the go go getter in a sense to I'm just helping people like I'm whether you're changing people's lives or you're giving people a space where they can mingle with their friends build better relationships take their job elsewhere like you're just creating a safe space for people to come and in and itself you're helping people and you're doing something for a greater good so at the end of the day Obviously, finances and certain things are important. Let's not like ignore that. But I think when there's a mission that's bigger than a dollar sign, there's always an impact that's greater than that dollar sign. Yeah. And and I mean, to go back to the original goal and um, it, what I always wanted, I always tell my staff this and, and I said it whenever I was opening, I wanted a comfortable, happy place for people to come kick back, learn about wine if they want to, and have some good, meaningful time with friends, colleagues, family, whoever you're with. And um, I wanted people to feel like, you know, it it feels a little bit like an extension of my home. You know, Mm -hmm. I want people to feel welcome. I want them to feel, you know, comfortable asking any question, no matter how big or small. And, you know, if I'm doing that if if my doors are open and that's happening i did it um and it doesn't hurt to to not be losing money while i'm doing it though some months i did um 
it's it's good when it's in the positive. <laughs> yeah, when you're in the green, <laughs> yeah. you're in the green. So if someone's listening to this and that's an experience that they are looking for, I want you to pimp yourself out. So where can people find you? Give us your Instagram. If you want to give out the address for those local to Dallas, how can people support you? Yeah, so um, the it's in the plaza at Preston Center, which is located at the south east corner of Northwest Highway in Preston, um, right next door to Pockets Menswear. Um, they're great neighbors. You should visit them too. Um, <laughs> knock, knock. Come and get some menswear. The, the address is 4004 Villanova Street. Um, our Instagram is um, at Trova Wine, website trovawine.com. Um, yeah, definitely come. Happy hour, half price. Wine by the glass from four to six, Monday through Thursday. Definitely a great little thing to check out. If you, it's, we have really cool options by the glass. There's 22 wines by the glass. Get them half off. Try different, something you've never tried before. I definitely recommend. She highly recommends and she's not biased because she's not the owner. <laughs> I'm not the so owner. So <laughs> don't get ahead of yourself if you think she's biased. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> The last question, first off, thank you so much for being on this podcast. But the last question that I ask every single guest is, Michelle, what are you grateful for today? I was thinking about this one in the car. Good. I know <laughs> that, you, that you ask it. And I had no answer when I pulled into the parking lot and I still don't. So I'm going to wing it. <laughs> you do. You have something to regret. This is good. There's, I'm forcing there's you. always things to be grateful for. This is the same thing I was just talking about with you have to recognize your wins. Um, you also have to to recognize the positives, which, you know, when you're someone whose head goes straight to the negative, it's tough to do. Uh, but yes, today I'm grateful for a business that's thriving and supportive family and friends. Um, I mean, really nothing replaces just a badass group of women who are you know, your support system and behind you all the time. And then, you know, family and friends and a husband that are your biggest cheerleader. So I'll take it. Well, I, see, she had a million things that she was grateful <laughs> for. And I'm going to piggyback off of you. I've been doing this a lot with guests, but that would friends, family and my health were three that I write down almost every day, but three that I wrote down this morning because I feel like I have so many I've met so many incredible people through this podcast and through this time in my life. Like so many people have shown up and just been so supportive and there for me and offered so many things, driving me places, whatever I needed. So that is what I am grateful for. And thank you so much for being on. Thank this was you. awesome.